landing upon dry land after being spewed from the fish's mouth, and this is what we encounter. Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now, Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. The people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. When word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne. He took off his royal robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. God saw their actions. That they had turned from their evil ways, so God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. As we think about what's going on here, the, the very first thing that becomes evident is God's grace. We've talked about God's scandalous grace all the way throughout the book, and this, is, this passage is no different. Every chapter of Jonah just oozes the grace of God. And here, at the beginning of the chapter, the first line of this chapter comes these precious words. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. What a beautiful line. God was not done with this prophet who had so blatantly disregarded the word of God, had decided he would rather die than proclaim the gospel. And the word of the Lord comes to him a second time. The book of Jonah teaches us, among many things, that our God is a God of second chances, and third chances, and fourth chances. God in his grace didn't write Jonah off. Remember, we we looked last week at We just mentioned briefly the story in 1 Kings 13, that prophet who had disobeyed God simply by just eating and drinking when he wasn't supposed to, and God struck him dead. Jonah deserved just that. That's what Jonah's sin merited. Yet God showed him grace. What a precious reminder that our God is a God of second chances. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Kevin Youngblood, in his commentary on Jonah, draws an interesting parallel between Jonah and Peter. And I had never seen this before, but in Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, we're not going to turn there, but you can jot it down and look at it later if you want to. Matthew 16, verse 17. Jesus is talking to Peter, and Peter got something that, that Jesus had said, is, is the light bulbs went on, and, 
And Jesus was pleased with Peter's response. And he says this to him. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Now, some commentators just kind of pass that by and ignore that. But other texts tell us pretty clearly that Peter's dad's name was John. And some commentators say, ah, Jesus was just shortening the name for John, and it comes out Jonah. But others think that that's not the case at all, that, that Jesus was sort of foreshadowing that Peter was going to need a God of second chances. At this point, yet Peter had not yet denied Jesus three times, had not yet turned his back upon Jesus. But that was going to happen very soon. Jesus called Peter the son of Jonah. That's not the only parallel. The, 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 the author here points out that Peter parallels uh, Jonah in that uh, Peter was the first of the apostles to cross the Jew and Gentile boundary and, uh, with the gospel in Acts chapter 10 when Peter went and preached to Cornelius. Jonah was a prophet to Israel and unusually was actually called to physically go to a Gentile nation. No other prophet that we know of was called to go physically deliver a message to another Gentile nation. And the other interesting parallel between Peter and Jonah that I'd never seen before was that when Peter received his vision in Acts chapter 10, and that it was okay for the gospel to go to Gentiles, he was staying with someone by the name of Simon the Tanner. Do you remember that in Acts chapter 10? He was staying with Simon the Tanner. Do you know where Simon the Tanner's house was? Where was it? It was in Joppa. It was in Joppa, the same place that, that Jonah had went to run from the, the ministry that God had called him to. And it was there that Peter was receiving the ministry that God was calling him to. But I think the most important parallel between these two biblical characters is that they both failed in their calling, and yet each looked over their shoulder to find a God who was pursuing them, who was unwilling to give up on them, who was unwilling to write them off, a God who longed to give them a second chance. Like Jonah, I imagine there's some of you here today who are in the middle of a long roundabout journey to experiencing God's grace. Some of you can give testimony to having been on that journey. But I wonder if others of us are right in the middle of it right now. We're ignoring what God's calling us to do. We've run, we've tried to hide. And yet God in his grace is pursuing you even this very moment and calling you to himself. Richard Phillips says it is to the glory of God's grace that our salvation progresses beyond forgiveness to full restoration. Even simply beyond forgiving you for your sin, the Father longs to restore you. Just like the son who wandered away from home in Jesus' story in Luke 15. The Father didn't just say, yeah, fine, you can go stay out in the servants' quarters. No, he restored him to his, his position as a son. And that's what our Father does. Waylon Jennings once wrote in a song, Look how far I had to come to get back where I started from. You know, if some of you are running today, and you think, you don't know, Jeremiah, how far I've run. You don't understand the things that I've done. You don't, you don't know how I've spurned the grace of God and how many times I've blown him off. I want you to know this morning that you haven't run too far. You can't. 
There's not a single person in this room who is beyond the reach of the grace of God. We see here in this text not only God's grace, as we do in every single one of these passages, but next we see Jonah's proclamation. So Jonah was given this mission back in chapter 1. We had this huge detour, and now we're back with almost the exact same wording. God says, get up and go to Nineveh and preach the message that I'm going to tell you. And so Jonah gets up and he goes this time. And he takes this message and he, he proclaims it to the people there. Now, I just want to throw up uh, on the slide here sort of this... Um, in case you don't remember this from week one. So here's Israel down here. And here's the area where, where Jonah would have grown up and, and lived and ministered here in, in the northern part of Israel. And so when he fled down to Joppa, that's down here. And then he went somewhere out here to Tarshish. We don't know exactly where it is. A lot of commentators think it could be as far as Spain. He was on his way to get as far away as he possibly could. So then the whole incident with the gigantic fish happens. And we don't know exactly where he got spit out on land. It may have been somewhere up in here, north of Israel. And then he had about a, this is a, roughly a three-week journey to get to Nineveh way over here. So we had a lot of time to process, to think about what God was doing and what he was going to say. And, and, and there's a lot that we just don't know about what's going through Jonah's mind at this point. But as Jonah comes into this city... This is his message. It says, Jonah got up, went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now, Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. So according to the text, it was, it was a gigantic area. It would have taken three days to get all the way around it. Maybe, maybe that was the dimensions of the city were a little smaller, but the whole region of Nineveh was that big. We don't know exactly, but uh, Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city, and he proclaimed, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. That is the extent of Jonah's uh, message. In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. We see here Jonah's proclamation. He gets to, around to finally doing what God has asked, and, and this, is, this is all he says. And I want to just cover, I don't have this part in your notes. If you want to jot these down, you can. But I have, first of all, written down here the source of his proclamation. He's got a message, and it's in verse 2, it's preach the message that I tell you. This was not Jonah's message, this was God's message. That's what we're called to proclaim. Not make up our own ideas or thoughts, but to proclaim what God tells us to proclaim. His word is the source of our message. But then the, the, the content of his proclamation was simply what we read. that In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Now, i got to be honest with you. I, 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 don't, I don't know if... There was more to it than that, if, if this is just a summary of what Jonah talked about. But all that we have written down here is just simply straight up judgment. <laughs> Forty days, you're going to be destroyed and wiped out. That, that's the extent of what we have written down here. Now, it's possible that's exactly what God wanted him to say. Prophets regularly gave messages of judgment. However, there are some clues in this text as to the condition of Jonah's heart, in that perhaps Jonah was not necessarily in the, in the best frame of mind yet. Let me just tell you what some of those clues are. For example, it, it says it, it takes three days to get through the city, yet he go, only goes a day journey into the city before he preaches. The text could be hinting that Jonah didn't even care enough to canvas the entire city. 
secondly, he didn't even take the message to the king. The king, as, we, as you read later in the chapter, the king has to find out through the other people that judgment is coming. And then, of course, there's chapter 4. We'll get to next week where we see that Jonah, Jonah is not at all interested in the Ninevites coming to repentance. And I don't know, commentators are divided on this, whether Jonah is in a good place right now and being in full obedience and doing what God has asked him to do with a, with a humble and a cheerful heart on one side of the camp. And then there are others, and I tend to lean this way, where Jonah's like, I'm going to go preach to Nineveh, but I'm still not happy about it. I still don't like these people. Because chapter 4 just indicates like he just has a rotten, rotten attitude. Well, next week we're going to finally get to why I think he hated the Ninevites so much. I, I tend to think that Jonah here is still not at a place of full joyful transformation. I mean, how many times have we done things for God where we're like finally going to obey him, but we're not happy about it? I mean, how many times this week have we done things for our boss or our spouse where it's like, yeah, sure, I'll do that, honey. Yeah, be happy to. And inwardly, you're grumbling. Kids, I mean, you've been there. Parents ask you to do a chore, and you're like, fine, but your heart is not there at all. So you just know that the consequences are pretty serious if you don't do it. I, I personally think, I could be wrong about this, but I personally think Jonah is still in that place. Well, I, figure, I found out what happens if I don't obey him. That didn't go so well, so I'm going to just go and do what he says. And I sort of feel like, and again, I might be wrong, but I sort of feel like Jonah's like, you guys are going to all die. Whatever you want to do with that, do with it. I, I kind of, based on his rep- response in chapter 4, I think that's where his heart is. And he's sort of like, look, God, I obeyed. I, did what, I, I came and preached the gospel. And he goes and he sits outside the city and he waits for God's judgment. It's like, it, it still doesn't seem like his heart has been deeply moved and transformed by God's grace. It still seems like there's that hardness. One commentator say, says here, it, it's, only, it's as though Jonah is only concerned to carry out his commission to the absolute minimum, and he seemingly has no concern for the well-being of those to whom he preached. There's, there's nothing here in his message about what would happen if the Ninevites repented. The still hardened heart of Jonah is reflected in his callous and graceless message. But here's what's awesome, is the power of this proclamation. The response of the Ninevites shows that the power lies in God and his word, not in the flashiness of the message. If we're right here, and it was done with lousy motives and very little compassion, God's power is exalted all that much more when we see how the Ninevites responded. I love what Isaiah tells us from from God when he says, So my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. You know, sometimes as we share our faith or maybe even do a, a devotional time with our kids or give witness in some other arena, our motives and our heart may not be in the right place. But God can still transform that, that impure motive 
and do a mighty work through the power of His Word in the might of the Holy Spirit. I love, love, love the testimony of Charles Spurgeon. You know, I like to quote Charles Spurgeon, um, and, and I, I love his, his story of how he came to faith in Christ. Uh, someone went through all of his sermons and discovered that he told this story 280 times over his preaching career. He loved to tell the story of how he came to faith in Christ. But d- despite his Christian upbringing, he was Christian as an infant, he was raised in the congregational church, and even his own efforts in his young teen years, he read the Bible and he prayed, he still had not experienced the transforming grace of God in his life. And he, he decided one Sunday morning in January of 1850, uh, he woke up with this deep need of deliverance. And, and there was a snowstorm that day, and the church that he was going to go to, he, he couldn't get to because of the, the snow. And so he was 15 at the time, and his, he was diverted to a, a, a church much closer, and it was a primitive Methodist chapel on Artillery Street there in England, and, and he wandered in, and that morning there was, the pastor was gone for whatever reason, and a substitute lay minister was speaking that day, and he stepped to the pulpit and he read as his text, Isaiah 45, 22, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no one else. And Spurgeon, in his own words, in his autobiography, recorded his reaction as a young 15-year-old. He said, this man did not have much to say, thank God. He kept repeating the text. He didn't really have a sermon. He didn't really have a, a, an eloquent message. He said he just kept repeating that text over and over and over again. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. And Spurgeon said he didn't have much to say, thank God, for that compelled him to keep on repeating his text. There was nothing needed by me at any rate except this text. Then he stopped and he pointed to where I was sitting under the gallery and he said, that young man there looks very miserable. I don't think, now I've had a lot of people say, Pastor, I think I felt like you were looking right at me this morning when I was preaching. And I promise you, I don't do that. If, that, if you feel like that, that's, that's between you and the God. I, I don't pick people out. and I've been tempted at times, but I don't pick people out and say, like, you need to hear this. But for whatever reason, God laid on this lay minister's heart. Young Spurgeon looked absolutely miserable sitting out there, and he picked him out of the crowd and he said, that, that young man there looks very miserable. And he shouted, as I, this is Spurgeon's word, he, says, I, he shouted as I think only a primitive Methodist can, look, look, young man, look now. And then I, he said, I had this vision, not a vision to my eyes, but a vision to my heart. I saw what a Savior Christ was. Now, I can never tell you how it was, but I no sooner saw whom I was to believe than I also understood what it was to believe. And I did believe in one moment. (laughs) Here we have someone who was just willing to step into the pulpit that morning. 
and repeated a passage of Scripture over and over and over again. No eloquent oratory, no beautiful three points in a, in a closing illustration to, to bring the house to tears. He just kept repeating it over and over, and then he pointed at someone that he felt like needed the message, and God forever changed literally the entire nation of England through that one simple message. You know what that means, don't you? It's not about the messenger. It's about the power of God to transform lives. And I, I, I don't know how many times in my ministry I've heard people say, I pastor, I could never get up in front of people and talk like that. It's just not me. I'm not, I'm not anywhere able to do that. I, I seem to remember reading that somewhere else in Scripture. A man by the name of Moses said that. And God used him mightily to convey the word of God to his people. Don't worry about dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's. Don't worry about how it comes out. Just share. Just be a mouthpiece. Let God do the work. He's the one that saves, not me, not you. Jonah here preached at best, at best, a simple message of repentance. But at worst, it was done from a begrudging heart that did not want to see the grace of God poured out on these people. Either way, it was basic. It was straightforward and simple. And yet, God poured out the greatest revival ever seen in the Old Testament. And it wasn't even among his people. This doesn't just happen, though. We have to open our mouths. I love how Roman 10, Romans chapter 10 puts it. How then can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. He's not talking about pastors and missionaries. All of us who proclaim the word of God are preachers. And we're all called to be preachers. We're all called to proclaim what Jesus Christ has done for us, to proclaim the grace of God. That next time you have an opportunity at a family reunion or around the, the lunch table at work and you're tempted to hold it back, lean into it. It can be simply, something simple as, hey, I just heard you sharing about the awful week you have. Can I just pray with you right now? It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be eloquent. You can never go wrong pointing people to Jesus. We, we don't have to have it all figured out. In fact, if you wait to have it figured out, you, you'll never share anything. I don't have all the answers. You don't have all the answers. So let's just start with what we know. Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the chief. Let's start there. God can transform lives through the simplest proclamation and declaration of Jesus. This morning, do you believe in the power of the word of God? Do you believe in the power of God to use his mighty word to transform lives?
I love what David wrote in Psalm 19. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. This is the word of God. May we hold it forth with boldness and trust the results to the only one who can bring about those results, God himself. Lastly, I want to take a few moments and talk about Nineveh's repentance. We've seen God's grace. We've seen Jonah's proclamation. And here now we see Nineveh's repentance. The contrast between the miserly and unloving proclamation and the thoroughness of the response could not be greater. Uh, just, let's just look at a few things with regards to their repentance. First of all, as we think about repentance, repentance begins with believing God's word. They had to listen first. Their ears had to, to tune in to what Jonah was saying. In verse 5, Jonah chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They took him at his word. This is similar language to what we read about in Genesis 15 when God spoke to Abraham and it says, And Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Almost the exact same wording in the Hebrew. The Ninevites believed God. This morning, are, 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 do you believe God's word? Do you hear and receive God's word? When you open up the scriptures, are you submitting yourself to what God wants to say through his text? Not just on Sunday mornings when we're in here together, but when you study on your own or when you're hearing it from a friend or on the radio, are you listening and taking in and submitting to what God says? Do you believe God's word? Repentance begins with believing God's word. For them to be changed, they had to hear the message and receive it. The second aspect of repentance that I jotted down is that repentance requires brokenness. We read Psalm 51 last week, and David's utter brokenness over his sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. David wept over his sin. He was broken. And you see here the response. We, don't, we won't necessarily read all these verses again, but you see that like there was, there was sackcloth, there was a fast, and in fact, in fact, even the animals got in on it. Uh, they had the animals covered with sackcloth. The animals couldn't uh, eat or drink water, eat food or drink water. Like th this, this was a citywide fasting. Everybody was broken over their sin and, and the consequences of their sin. When God comes to us and reveals in his grace our sin, we need to humbly respond like the Ninevites. This is, a, this is a contrast, I think, to what, the way Jonah responded. We said in chapter 2, he was thankful for what God did, but we don't see this kind of brokenness over his rebellion and disobedience against God. This is what God longs for us to reveal when he convicts us. When he says, Jeremiah, look at the way that you're speaking to this person. Or he reveals a thought pattern or, or a way of living or, or, or priorities that are out of whack or pride that has risen up. We don't push it aside or say, yeah, I probably shouldn't have done that. But we grieve over sin. We take time to linger there and allow ourselves to feel the effects of the sin that took Jesus to the cross. They were broken over their sin. Thirdly, we see that repentance is personal. This was not just citywide, but this is, this is individual. They had to themselves as men and women and children 
needed to come before God. Look at verse 8. It says, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Do you see how personal the text makes it? This was not just, hey, let's all do this, but each of you needs to turn from your sins. One of the great dangers that we have when we're confronted with the Word of God, and I'm, I, I'm speaking from a place of, I do this. So I know this danger very real, it's very real to me, is applying this text to someone else. How many times have we sat in a sermon on Sunday and been tempted or just straight up elbowed the person next to you? Or you're thinking in your mind the whole time, oh, I wish so-and-so was here for this. I had someone call, a family member called me the other day and said, yeah, I was reading this passage of scripture and uh, I thought, man, this is really convicting. And it was interesting because I, I wasn't expecting them to say that. And then they, they said, I mean, a little bit for me, but I was especially thinking of so-and-so. And I, and I thought, man, how, how often we do that. We hear the word of God, that's a great start. But then we want to transfer it and we don't make it personal. We don't sit in it. It's like the, the old kids song, it's, it's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord. Standing in the need of prayer. Not my brother, not my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's, it's hearing God's word and, and seeing what God says to us personally and how he's convicting us personally of sin in that moment. One of the, the almost every commentator you'll read on the book of Jonah point out the tremendous contrast that the author intended to draw between the way pagans in the book receive the word of God and the way that the man of God receives the word. In chapter 1 and in chapter 3, we see pagans who are utterly repentant and calling out to God. And yet the man of God, the person who should know better, we see constant hard-heartedness. We see constant excusing and rationalizing. The person that you expect to respond with humility, doesn't. And the people that you expect to reject the message respond with brokenness and humility. It was no different than when Jesus came. The people that you would have expected, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, those who knew the scriptures inside and out, you would think, okay, these are the ones that are going to be most faithfully beside Jesus. They're the ones who are looking for the Messiah most fastidiously. And they rejected him. And the people, you're like, don't waste your time. The disciples would be like, don't waste your time with that woman by the well. What are you doing talking to her? Why, why are you sitting down and allowing the sinner to wash your feet? Why are you allowing kids to climb on your lap, Jesus? All the people that they expected to be not worth the time, those were the ones that came to him. It just reminds us that the way of God's kingdom, it, it, it's not our way of doing things. And there's no one with whom, from whom we should withhold this message because God's at work drawing surprising people to himself. And then finally, with regard to repentance, repentance is turning from sin and turning to God. In verse 8, the king says, everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. And then look at verse 10. God saw their actions. 
that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. Scripture tells us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The people of Nineveh got it. Their life, their actions represented a heart that was turning away from sin and turning to God. How about you this morning? When God brings you to a place of conviction over sin, maybe it's even something right now that God's speaking to you about. Is it enough for you to say, yeah, I, I get it. I probably shouldn't be doing that. I could see how, if you look at it from that perspective, how that might have been hurtful. Yeah, That's not repentance. That's sort of bumping up against acknowledging sin. But it's not what happened here. When we're confronted with our own sin, our response needs to be like the Ninevites. To confess that sin before God. And to be willing to turn from our sin. It doesn't mean that we go forward living a life of perfection from that day on, onward. And if you ever mess up again, that means you weren't truly repentant. No, 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 no. But in that moment, our heart needs to be against you, oh God, I have sinned. And I long to turn away from that and follow Jesus. And begin to head in a different direction than the direction you had been going. That's what the Ninevites did. J.I. Packer writes, repentance is a change of mind issuing in a change of life. This morning, as we hear Jonah's message, I, I don't know where each of us are at. I, I don't know where everyone's heart is. But this morning, I know for a fact that God longs for you to be confronted in a powerful way with his scandalous grace. We saw here from this text that God's grace just came alive and is powerful and it's real as he gave Jonah a second chance. Maybe this morning you need a second chance. I want you to know that you and I, we serve the God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances. The God not just with Peter but with, I mean not just with Jonah but with Peter and so many others throughout scripture continue to pursue them even in their disobedience. We also need to remember the power of God's word this morning, not only to change our heart and life, but to change the lives of those around us. You have loved ones that you long to see come to Christ. Don't stop sharing. Don't stop praying. God's power is far greater than our power. This, the ability of the Spirit of God to take that word and to bore into their hearts far surpasses even the most eloquent and gifted communicator that's ever walked the face of this earth. Don't worry about saying it just right or, or trying to beat them over the head and convince them and win the argument. God's calling you to just simply share. And then finally, with Nineveh's repentance, we're reminded that God calls us as we're confronted with our own sin to humbly turn to him, turn from our sin, and to walk with him. I'm excited for what we're going to find out in chapter 4 because there are some, I think, surprising things that come alive as God begins to zero in on Jonah's heart and in his love is unwilling to let him squirm away from what he's trying to do in the prophet's life. As we get ready to bow in prayer, I just want to remind you as always that we'll have some folks up here who would love to pray with you if you have anything on your heart and mind that you'd love to pray for, or you just would like to have some time to pray by yourself. That's fantastic, too. We would love to 
just be able to minister to you in any way we, we possibly can. So we're going to just take a moment and bow our heads now as we get ready to conclude our time together today. God, your grace amazes us. It is staggering to think about your faithfulness in the midst of our unfaithfulness, your patience in the midst of our rebellion. We thank you, God, that you pursue us time and again. God, give us, give us patience with others. And may we extend grace to ourselves. Some of us have, have blown it a lot lately. And we wonder if God's writing us off or if there's anything that we could possibly do for him. And you just remind us, God, that you're, your love is steadfast. Your love is patient. You're faithful to pursue our hearts, even when we're unfaithful. Give us hearts that genuine repentance when you convict us of sin. We be humble before you, O oh God. I want you as you are, you are not you are to be. We thank you for your Won't might you lay and your power your to work, and come to no matter what the circumstances are. The shame that grips you now is crippling. May the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace as you believe, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. God's strength.